0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen anderson Abril. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson Abril. Today we're starting an occasional series called Let's Talk Therapy. As you know, I connect with so many therapists on Instagram and we support one another and we encourage one another as we share our platforms and our passion for the positive impact therapy can have on all of us. There's still a lot of mystery about therapy. Sometimes there's a bit of a stigma yet. And of course, as a psychologist, I'm all about trying to reduce that stigma, trying to encourage us all to find a therapist to support our emotional growth and development before the crisis strikes, before we're hit with that big mental health concern that knocks us to our knees. We really can utilize therapy as part of our health maintenance, as opposed to something we only seek out when things have gotten really rough. To help me discuss these issues and so much more, I've invited Eli Weinstein, LCSW, to the program. Here's a little bit more about Eli. Eli Weinstein is a psychotherapist who has worked in psych hospitals, intense outpatient clinics, and community clinics. He created his platform, Elevation, to help those struggling with mental health concerns and to inspire and motivate all of us in our everyday lives. He runs events, seminars, and provides individual coaching on topics surrounding mental health awareness, public speaking, relationship coaching, and confidence boosting. Eli, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Yeah, so let the listeners know, someone who may not be familiar with you and your work and your journey, catch them up to speed a little bit about your platform and what you're here to talk about.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I'm a therapist out in New York, and I specialize with ages 18 to their 40s and 50s, working with people with anxiety, depression, relationship issues, and trauma. And, um, you know, I'm a married guy with almost a two-year-old daughter. And my wife and I went through infertility, so that's part of who I am as well. And really work on creating a platform for people to feel heard and seen and to make mental health more digestible and relatable instead of sterile and too over people's heads. That's really where my motivation comes from and passion is to help people in their journey of wellness and health.
0: Yeah. And I think for a long time, at least historically, there was this stigma about going to to see a therapist. And I think we're moving through that a bit, but I think it's still there to some degree. And it's really sad to me. I, I would love for us as a as a culture, as a community to realize that you go to the dentist twice a year for your checkup and how about we go and get our mental wellness checkups? How great would that be if it became so normalized that people felt very comfortable being more proactive, right? They come to your office when they have the depression, when the anxiety is kicking in, as opposed to, huh, I'm going through a life change, a developmental crisis. You know, I'm about to leave for college or I'm about to graduate college or I'm about to get married. All these big developmental transitions and Life changes, and we know from the research on stress that as much as even the happy changes in our lives can bring us to experience a great deal of stress, that then can kick in anxiety, and it's unanticipated because we're like, "Wait, I'm supposed to be happy, right?" (laughs) Yeah, it would be wonderful. People could come and see you before things got rough,
1: right? Wouldn't that be nice if uh, if insurance (laughs) covered you know mental health checkups? That would be great. But you know, I think also a big thing is that something that I've seen during the pandemic is this little movement towards the idea of how important mental health treatment and mental health is. And I think a silver lining of everything going on is people getting help when they need it and realizing that they can't just do it alone and life can be really really hard and life's a lot and it's important to get the help that you need. I wish I went to the dentist twice a year. I don't. So uh maybe that's why I have all those teeth <laughs> problems, but in the end, you know, we do go for yearly checkups to our doctors. We do those things. But for some reason, mental health is looked at as something is wrong with you or you are quote unquote crazy or insane, which I hate that that word or that mentality about it, because in the end, that just hurts people in the long run from being so afraid of talking to someone who really just wants to take care of you, have your back and is objective to be able to give you perspective on what's going on in life.
0: Yeah, I wish we could normalize it just as mental health challenges, everyone is going to experience them. Like you said, just because you have a bout of nervousness before speaking, we're we're to the point now where sometimes people pathologize themselves. They're like, I have panic disorder, I have anxiety. And so they throw these terms around, which as a psychologist, it does two things that bother me. One is that for people who do have full-blown serious diagnoses in this realm, it minimizes what they're going through. If someone goes, oh, my gosh, I had a panic attack because that boy didn't call me back. Right. Well, mm, did you, though? Or Mm -hmm. were you frustrated? Yes, of course. Were you sad? Were you angry? Did you have some nervousness and anxiety that maybe this relationship isn't going to move forward the way I wanted it to? But let's be careful with our terminology. And then the second thing that concerns me, and I'd be curious what you think about this, is that. We are now in a time of what we can call in the field. It's not my term. It's from Dr. Alan Francis, who wrote the book Saving Normal. He's a psychiatrist, and he was in charge of the dsm 4 He was a chair of the steering committee for the dsm 4 And then the dsm 5 came out, and he was appalled by what he calls diagnostic inflation. So then we have the point where every little ebb and flow of our emotional state, we want to pathologize. We want to then provide a diagnosis when sometimes we're just experiencing a very normal and to be expected fluctuation in our emotional state that's well within the normal range. Normal is hard to define. But that's my concern too, is that then we have diagnostic inflation and people assume something's fundamentally and and psychiatrically wrong with them when really they're just experiencing a very reasonable reaction to to a a rough rough patch in life.
1: Yeah, I I love that point. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. One, I really want to thank Google for taking our jobs away <laughs> um, when it comes to doctors as well, WebMD and all those things like, oh, I get worried and I, I touch things or I do things. Uh, I have OCD. Like, no, right. you don't. Maybe you do, but talk to someone first before Googling your symptoms. And I hate to say this, but I think a lot of the things are pushed by insurance companies yes. because you can't just see someone just for fun, right? Not that therapy is you know, always fun and enjoyable, but as a therapist, <laughs> you can't bill insurance or get paid If there's no diagnosis, same thing for when you go to a doctor, right? If you just go to a doctor and they do absolutely nothing, you can't bill for that. You have to bill for something, whether it's a yearly checkup, whether it's a strep swab, whether it's a COVID test, whatever the thing is that you're going to the doctor for, there has to be a billing code for you to get paid. And I think that drives a lot of diagnosis. For example, the most common diagnosis that I've been doing recently is adjustment disorder, which is like, hey. You're adjusting to life and you're struggling with it. That's really what it is. Of course, it's more detailed than that. And some issues are, are stronger than others, whether it's from trauma or a stressor, a life stressor. But that's like the simplest thing I can give someone who is just coming because life kind of hit them in the face a little bit and things have hit the fan and they don't know how to deal with it. Are they full-blown anxiety? No. Are they depressed? No. Are they adjusting to life? Yes. So we have to put that on them so we can get paid, which, which drives the cycle and this, this diagnostic overload. I remember when I was in undergrad, uh, I had a great professor, Dr. Perry, and I owe my career to him. He really taught me a lot about how to really be there for someone and to truly see someone for who they were, not just the diagnosis that they might have or will have in the future. And he said, we were taking abnormal psychology in undergrad. And he looked at the class and he said, I'm sure half of you are probably going to look through the DSM and give yourself some type of diagnosis. He goes, I promise you, most of you don't have them. Right. So take a deep breath. If you're worried, come talk to me. But don't assume because you have X, Y, and Z or one, two, and three things of random diagnosis that now you're pathologizing yourself and you're ruined for life.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing that concerns me is that we can create for ourselves a self-fulfilling prophecy. The label that we adhere to ourselves, the, that impacts how we see ourselves, certainly, how we see the world, how we interpret everything that happens around us. And that's a very powerful, I'm so glad Dr. Perry said that to your class, especially when you were young and in your undergrad abnormal class, just to help prepare you to not be so quick to slap these labels on yourself and on your your future clients. When you said adjustment disorder, I said, I love it because that to me, is exactly what's going on with probably most people that end up in an office like yours. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the insurance companies have hijacked your job and your ability to see your client. Because the other thing that we don't talk about is that therapists, if they provide a diagnosis because they need to get paid, of course, and the client wants to use their behavioral health plan, but now the therapist sees the client through that lens. Mm-hmm. And does that, in fact, constrain the therapist's ability to be open to more of a strength-based approach if they have now, in their mind, labeled and, in a sense, provided a, a limited mindset as to what this client is capable of?
1: I, I love that you brought that up right now. And I think it's really important for people to understand that point, that when I used to work in a community clinic, there was someone else before they got assigned to a therapist right? There was an intake department, they have conversations, they diagnose, they assess all those things, they put a diagnosis in. And if I ever got certain diagnosis on my desk, I would have automatic assumptions because it's normal to have these automatic thoughts about, like, for example, classic haters is borderline personality disorder, right? right? When you see that, you're like, oh no, not working with that. (laughs) But in reality, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's someone going through a struggle. So what I started doing actually, because I realized and saw myself going down that route, whether it's depression, whether it's a suicidal attempt or suicide ideations, schizophrenia, all the like the big scary ones for a therapist who might not be sure how to handle it automatically has assumptions of, oh no, how am I going to deal with this? And that limits your therapeutic relationship because the person hasn't even come into your office yet and you're already assuming that they're going to be X, Y, and Z negative word. And what I started doing is not looking at the intake form, just their name, when I was going to see them. And then I would ask them to tell me what was going on. And I would make my judgment based on that. Because if I ended up coming to the same conclusion of the diagnosis, great. But I did my work. I did my research. I thought about it from my perspective as a therapist versus someone else defining that perspective for you as a therapist.
0: I admire that so much. And my first job as a therapist, I was working in Chicago South Side in a child welfare agency. And i read some of the case files and then felt like what you're saying, I felt that I would see these kids differently based on because, frankly, I would see these kids as how in the world am I going to be able to help this kid who whose mother is addicted to a substance whose father's never been in the picture, mother's boyfriend has come in repeatedly and beaten this child, or horrific, unfathomable. I would immediately then begin to doubt my ability to be supportive. How can this kid recover? And that wasn't useful either. If I entered the session with, well, we'll do what we can here. I recognized that it was limiting my own faith and belief in the process of therapy and my ability to be supportive.
1: Yeah, and I love that honesty about what it means to be a therapist secret time here for people who are listening, what it means to be a therapist. (laughs) A lot of times we really don't know exactly what to do in, in every single scenario. We are not gods. We are not a a massive amount of wealth of knowledge that knows every single treatment for every single scenario in every single area and every single person. It's not practical. It's not realistic, but what we can do as therapists, what we can try to do, which I try to do as best as I can. I'm not perfect by any means is to be there with the person where they're at. If someone's coming to you an X, Y, and Z issue, be there with them. I have clients sometimes that kind of make me wonder if my skills are there, but I have to be confident that I'm just going to show up, be there with them, show them care, concern, talk to them, talk through the issues they're going through. And after the session, before the session, look up things, research things. If you don't think doctors have to look up things when they go back to their office for those 10, 15 minutes in between talking to you and giving you some ideas or they all do because we can't remember everything. We don't know everything. Something might surprise us or we haven't seen it in many years. So as therapists need to give yourself a break to just do your best with the person and not doubt your skills of being a caring, empathetic person. That's really the base foundation of what it means to be there with someone as a therapist.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting. It reminds me of when I was in grad school getting my clinical psych master's. I was taking cognitive behavioral therapy at the same time as I was taking a course in psychodynamic therapy. And it was really interesting. Obviously, the two are quite different. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, just a little. Just a little bit. bit. (laughs) And so, yeah, to speak to your point, in CBT, you're, you're, acquiring all these skills and these tools and these techniques. And in psychodynamic, it's so much more fluid, right? And my psychodynamic prof would, he would always say, which I think really speaks to what you're talking about here, trust the process, and at the time, like I'm in my early 20s, I was probably 22 years old. And I'm like, the pro- what is he talking about? <laughs> like, I don't even know what he's talking about, right? So, so CBT, I was like, well, this is concrete. This is this is a, I have a, a, a protocol. I have a treatment plan in place. Whereas psychodynamics seemed nebulous, hard to pin down. But as I grew and developed, what you're talking about is exactly true. So yes, you do research. Yes, you come prepared. Yes, you have some tools and techniques and interventions that you have at the ready. But also, you are in that moment and being present with someone. Very few of us have someone who is giving us 50 minutes undivided attention, completely about us, present, doing our very best not to be thinking about the past or the future, being in this moment, how powerful that experience alone is and letting that process happen. So even when you were prepared, you are then going to be very nimble so that in that moment, should something come up, you can respond in this exact space and time. And that alone, to your point, is so powerful.
1: Yeah. And, and just to touch on something that, you know, is one of your expertise when it comes to, let's say, relationships, that's very, very true as well for relationships, right? If we have someone in our corner, a loved one, a partner, someone we're dating or going through that relationship journey with, or a friend who can give us that time to be there without judgment, without trying to say the next thing to kind of quote unquote right. fix or solve a problem, how amazing that would be. Sometimes you just want to be heard and to sit with someone and be there with their feelings. And you get that with therapy. And we're not wizards and you know witches or sorceress with a, a magic wand <laughs> or magic things to solve your problems and we can just wave our hands and say some incantation or mantra and ta-da, you're fixed. Um, it's not about being fixed. It's really about being with your feelings and learning how to navigate them through your life so that you can do it on your own.
0: Yeah, that experience of being in a session and then being able to gradually over time being able to internalize some of the strategies or the experience of that presence that the therapist provides. And certainly, yes, some tools and techniques because I love my CBT. So you got to keep those techniques in there. <laughs> got to get
1: them in. That CBT gotta... is where it's at.
0: <laughs> but yeah, but then being able to internalize them, which I did, which is so funny because I've told my audience before so much of me gravitating towards CBT, even more so than initially working with my clients, but more on the personal level. When I was starting to have frustrations and starting to get down and starting to get depressed, I would go, hmm, what would Ellis tell me to do right now? (laughs) He'd tell me I'm being (laughs) irrational. (laughs) And I'd be like, okay, Karen, you would use this exact technique with a client. How about you try it on yourself? And that's where the internalization of the techniques that I've been trained to use with others, I started using them myself and found how incredibly powerful they are. If you're into personal development, if you geek out on psych research, and if you're looking to level up in all realms of love and life, a love and life support group is for you. In love and life groups, you'll enjoy the camaraderie of connecting with like-minded women, You'll feel encouraged and empowered by others endeavoring to thrive in all realms of love and life. We all know there's strength in numbers. So join us for deep conversations designed to provide healing and promote growth. Head over to my website for more details. So tell us a little bit about your personal journey. What kinds of techniques did you learn perhaps from your therapeutic training that then you use on yourself and, and in your marriage, perhaps, and in your parenting?
1: Well, that's a real good question. And, you know, as a kid, I struggled with ADHD, um, you know, got slapped a diagnosis as a young kid. I totally believe it was true. I was off the walls, excited with energy, jumping, dancing, singing, just a ball of energy, basically. That was very hard to control. And my emotional regulation was all over the place. And uh, with help of therapists and psychiatrists and, and my, my wonderful supportive family, I, I am the person I am today, which pushed me to be a therapist. I was like, oh, this can be really helpful for people. And I've gone through my bouts of anxiety, like most people in the world, and I really fell in love with the CBT model. I love CBT. I'm also, I dabble in psychodynamics, as you can hear with how I describe things, Mm -hmm. a little bit of ACT, a little bit of DBT, basically all those acronyms and a little bit of everything. And I think for me, when I learn how the thoughts and feelings and behaviors are totally connected, this triangle of how we deal with our daily life and the cognitive distortions and the things that kind of maybe put on certain glasses that we might see the world through, it really helped me kind of gain perspective on me as a therapist on me as a, as a father and me as a partner to be able to not let my thoughts dictate how I might be feeling or behaving. And my thoughts are not my reality, they are mm. thoughts. And I, I know that's a big thing that we push as therapists, as CBT therapists, right, thoughts aren't reality. When you start really understanding it and looking at it from a therapist perspective, an objective perspective, it really can help you gain a lot of control and view of your life in a healthier way. And it has helped me in leaps and bounds for me as an individual and for me as a therapist. And I love the CBT model. I think it is a really amazing process to help someone just gain that perspective could really be eye-opening.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned ACT too, which I adore as well. I love the notion uh, from Dr. Hayes, and he's actually been on the podcast two times. He's Ooh. really yeah, yeah. I know I'm so I am so excited just to have had him on with such an honor. But yeah, the psychological flexibility model. So I love that that we can realize that we have so much more flexibility in terms of our responses if we can defuse as he puts it, right? Defuse from our thoughts, defuse from our feelings, get a little distance from them and realize I don't have to react. I don't have to have a knee-jerk reaction. I can choose my response. And of course, if you've had some therapy, it helps you, it allows yourself to take that moment, press pause for just a split second and then go, okay. And I love how he puts it. Instead of I'm having anxiety right now, I'm having the thought that I'm having anxiety. That sort of thing can provide that distance. It's so critical for having the ability, like you said, to take more control of these realms of life that oftentimes feel very out of control.
1: Yeah, I like the, you know, the the, the key words, right, that we all use as therapists because of a, of a theory like diffuse and cognitive distortions and all these words that we throw out there to kind of gain perspective is very important for anything we're going through to kind of put it outside of yourself and see it for what it is versus it being who you are. Right. Can be very helpful for someone to not attack themselves, to not blame themselves, to not look inward and be self critical, but to look at anxiety or depression or any mental health issue that you're going through as externalizing it outside of who you are and saying, okay, that's where this is. It's not who I am. It doesn't mean it defines me as a person, right? Which is what the shift has been from a therapist perspective, the words we use, right? It's not an anxious person. It's someone who has anxiety, right? It's someone who has. Uh, a diagnosis. It isn't them. It is the diagnosis. It's separate from who they are. and doesn't mean it makes them who they are.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the words are so important. Someone saying, I'm depressed. And I want to challenge that. I want to say, you're having depressive feelings right now. You're having sad feelings. You're having profound grief. You're having... You're experiencing that in this moment, but to own it, I am, right? I don't want to, like, I am a psychologist. Yes, that I'm good with, but I don't want to own that negative mood state because I think that, again, we've talked about it, it takes on that identity. I love the the model of seasons. You may be moving through a season of sadness and depression, because 99.9% of the time, it's because you have every reason to, right? You just lost a loved one, or you're just emerging from a pandemic. Most of the time, we have very good reasons, and our feelings are there to tell us something. So we don't want to dismiss them, of course, but we also don't want to fuse ourselves to them.
1: And I think what you're saying is also, I like to tie it back into relationships a little bit, is very similar to how we handle relationships issues, right? Right. Just because something bad might be happening right now, or something might be a struggle in a relationship, it does not define the relationship as an all or nothing. It can be a season of someone being in a certain mood or a certain state of where they're at. Even the diffusing thing to remove the issue from the person, to take a step back and see them for who they truly are, right? To accept them for who they truly are as the reason why you're in the relationship with them, the good and all the things that you love or care about a person, and this one moment of negativity or bad behavior. Or something that might trigger or 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 frustrate you, doesn't mean that that is the entirety of the relationship or the entirety of the person that you care about. You know, I remember when I was getting married, all the advice, you know, don't go to bed angry, you know, all those classics. You know, the one advice that I really truly loved was when someone said, "Remember this day and why you love your wife and why you're getting married to her. Remember this day. Remember the feelings. Remember all the emotions that are going into it." to remind yourself, to look back at pictures, to look back at the good times, because there are going to be rough times, but that should not cloud your judgment of your partner. And do not let that stop you from being in the relationship with love, care, and affection.
0: Yeah. And it really speaks to what we've been talking to. It's about getting that little distance, right? To have that one moment, then not overwhelm the entire relationship or that one rough day or that one rough argument to then have that notion of, Well, I guess we're doomed. I guess we're over, right? It's it's, that first argument. That first
1: argument always gets you to that point where you're like, "That's it. We had an argument. It's over," right? Because you never got into a tizzy or a fight with a with a partner before. You're married. It's a commitment, and you have this massive, you know, explosion of an argument. So to have our our black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking can be very detrimental, even for ourselves when you look at ourselves. Right? A one mistake, now a bad person. Right? So we have to be careful with how we look at ourselves how we define those things.
0: Yeah, it's so true. It reminds me of parts theory. In therapy, oftentimes we will look at trying to help a client deal with a decision, for example, and there's always going to be parts that are doing battle within us and trying to integrate those parts. I'm not talking about dissociative identity disorder or anything, and I'm not talking about something that feels so polar opposite like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. It's the idea of, yeah, well, we're complex people and we have complex desires and we can want multiple things at the same time that that are in fact mutually exclusive. So we have to make choices and we have to make decisions based on our values, getting back to act, right? And trying to sort all these sorts of things out. It's it's I think it's helpful for a client to understand themselves how their own parts do battle at times. And then we can go, wow, that's what my partner's going through right now, right? Like we could have a little forgiveness for, or appreciation maybe. So the part of your partner that you love so much can also be their weakness, right? Our strengths are our weaknesses and all that kind of conversation, I think that we can do in therapy or or listening to a podcast like this or having some more in-depth conversations with friends those can help us be a little bit more, I think patient and gracious with our partnerships.
1: Yeah, and I I think, you know, I, I know you wrote a book, right? Single is the New Black. Not yeah. that I did my research on you or anything I'm the last talk, I promise. But like the idea that you have to fit in a certain box when you're single, you have to do X, Y, and Z or the expectations. You need to take the time that you need for yourself and go out there and do what works for you. Don't let other people's perceptions or ideas impact how you view yourself. So, you know, I know you're the expert on this and I'm not, but uh, <laughs> I really, you know, I not that I need to promote your book on your podcast, but I love that concept of that idea that you take the time you need when you need it and when it's right, go for it.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the the plug here on my program. I appreciate it. Anytime. If you need me to plug (laughs)
1: on your own show, I can plug anything you need.
0: (laughs) I appreciate it. But yeah, I think it's what you spoke to is that knowing what's right for you. And I think that's a harder process than we realize many times people go through that identity development, which we think about as starting, Eric Erickson talked about starting in adolescence. And yet we try to carve out our identity. And yet we're also always interdependent with other people's perspectives on us because we're learning about who we are, partly in response to the mirror that others hold up for us or how they react and respond to us. And so then we get into our 20s and maybe we want to start moving towards relationships that are more serious now. And sometimes we just don't really know ourselves well enough to know what's a fit, which is why relationships can be a great way to learn about that. Right. And then that's why I try to encourage my community. Every breakup has given you so much information now. It's painful or hideous. I've been through too many myself, but you do learn that. Well, okay. The valuable takeaway is that that didn't work. And it was a hard lesson to learn a hard way, but if I recognize that that was a lesson that I carry with me now that has informed me a little bit more about myself and who I am in partnership and what I desire in partnership, then it was never wasted time. And I think that that as people get a little bit older and other people have found their person and now they're feeling this stigma because of single shaming, which is out there and Their parents keep asking them when they're going to come home with a boyfriend at Christmas, that kind of stuff. It it can get murky because then even if they have a sense of self and what they want, they might then start doubting themselves and go, well, maybe I am holding out for something that doesn't Mm -hmm. exist. Maybe I am too picky, which is what they hear all the time as well. Yeah. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love & Life family. What can you tell my audience from the male perspective of dating? What what should women know about men that they maybe don't oh, know? Here's a fun
1: <laughs> one. Well, I'll be honest, you know, it's funny that you're talking about that whole single shaming. I come from a religious Jewish background where like the Jewish mothers, like, so <laughs> when's the grandkids coming? Right. That classic thing. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, it, there's a lot of pressure out there when you're single and, and you're in the right time, quote unquote, whatever that means, right, to find someone and to have a family. Whatever relationship you're looking for, it has to be right for you, not for your family. I think the biggest key for when we are ready to date or find someone is when we know who we are. When we have found our identity based on us, not other people. I think I would be honest, not on research based, just anecdotal. I think women come to that a lot faster than men do. I think uh, men sometimes take a little longer to be mature in that sense. But I, I think it's really dependent on the individual to be who they are and take your time when you're ready, not based on what family or friends say you should or shouldn't do.
0: I think there actually is a little research on that because the most recent research on brain development shows that our brains aren't fully mature until much later than what had been previously believed. Men, their brains aren't fully formed until like their late 20s and women, it's mid 20s. So,
1: you know, back in the day, the research was still, the, you know, the same difference, right? It was men were mature later than women do. Now it's just pushed a little farther. So go us, (laughs) woohoo. Go men. We have to wait a lot longer to find maturity in our brains. But in the end, I think it's really important for us to take the time we need.
0: One of the mistakes I think people make oftentimes is I'm going to meet someone and then I'll be happy. And as you put it, I need to be happy with me first.
1: Exactly. And I, I love that point. That can be really a weird and unhealthy. Foundation of a relationship to build it off. I am relying on this person solely for my happiness because I'm not there yet for myself. And it doesn't mean, you know, this magical, mythical thing that I need to be perfect to be ready to have someone in my life. That's not practical because you can't be perfect. But to be at a place of a baseline that you are accepting of yourself and okay with yourself, that's really where it's at. But if you're relying on someone else to fix it or to make you happy or to change your life and you're going to have this disney moment where you're going to float away into the into the sunlight <laughs> that's not going to start the relationship off in the right way because when it's not like that what do you do right if they right. don't give you that happiness what happens
0: yeah and i i mean i got married at 42 my husband was 46 and we clearly have a very different trajectory with our path but it's interesting what you're saying because we don't even we don't fight very much because i never look at him With, I think, what happens in some relationships with anger that why am I not happy? It's his fault. Like, if I'm not happy today, it is on me. It is completely 100% on me. And so we'll even have things where I can tell I'm just getting crabby and he does the loving husband thing trying to, well, can can I help you with it? And I'll just be like, you know what? What I really need, I need about a half hour. I'm going to go walk the dogs. I'm going to go put some music on and I'm going to be fine. Because I know it's my job to make me fine. And I'm going to do the things I know, like get some sunshine, go get get my endorphins going by taking a brisk walk, love on my pups. And then I come back and he doesn't feel any need like some men can, right? Like, well, it was my job to make her happy. I'm the man. No, no, it's really not. It's not. (laughs) And that's the model that works for us. And I know that that's not for everyone, but I really encourage people to move in that direction because what we see so often in partnership is the resentment can build because people are putting on their partner responsibility that is absolutely their own.
1: Yep, uh, I agree with that so much. I have nothing to add on that because I think when you get married later on in life, you know how to deal with your stuff on your own. Right. right, You've gone through the ringer. You understand the ups and downs of your emotions and who you are and your thoughts and how they impact you. And it's not that you don't need another person, it's that you know that you're level of happiness, sadness, emotions are on you because you've been through it by yourself. Right. But when you get married at a really young age and you're not mature yet, or you're not independent yet like that, you then expect that other person to be the savior, that knight in shining armor, or that princess to come and take you off your feet and solve your problems and fix it for you. And when they don't, that's where the arguments can come about.
0: Yeah. And it makes me sad because you can have two people who are probably a really great fit, And they're adding all this angst and to the partnership. And it really could be so fluid and beautiful if they would just own their stuff and then walk hand in hand instead of looking at the other one with this expectation and this anger. And why aren't you doing this for me? And I'm thinking that was never their job in the first place. It really wasn't.
1: Amen. Amen to that.
0: If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals. And we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. So, Eli, I have loved this conversation. Do you have any parting words for my audience as we wrap up? Thanks so much for joining me and for sharing your wisdom as a therapist and some of your personal experience as well. And let the listeners, of course, know where to find you and to follow you and and, uh, see what you're about and what you've got going on.
1: Yeah, so I have an Instagram page called Ellie Weinstein underscore LCSW. I have a private practice in New York. And uh, I have a podcast of my own called The Dude Therapist. Maybe you can come on. I would love to have you.
0: That'd be fun. And
1: uh, it would be great. We would have a party. And it's all about (laughs) mental health and wellness from a dude therapist perspective, which is why it's called The Dude Therapist. Surprise. (laughs) And in the end, the biggest thing I really want to impart is that we need to be a lot kinder and loving to ourselves and to the world around us and not to be so hard on ourselves and to create an environment that we feel loved and cared for. Because in the end, when we create that for ourselves, when we embody that for ourselves, we can have a better perspective with our thoughts and how that impacts our life. And reach out whenever you want. I'm available on social media at Ellie Weinstein underscore LCSW. And I hope to hear from you guys soon.
0: Thank you so much. I feel bad. I've been calling you Eli. Is Ellie.
1: It is Ellie, but people call me Eli. And that's all good. I got no, I got nothing against that.
0: My Uh, my name's
1: a really long Jewish name that most people can't pronounce. So my nickname is E-L-I. So depending on where you're from and if you know me, it's either Ellie or Eli. And in the end, it makes no
0: difference to me. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I just assumed. I should have have checked with you. Yeah. All good. All right. Well, thanks again, Ellie. Appreciate your time. All the best. The love and life hack for this week is let's talk therapy. And let's utilize talk therapy. Or if individual counseling isn't your thing, consider a group format like my love and life support groups. Psychologists and therapists are here for you. Take charge of your life by availing yourself of the resources around you. As always, I want to thank you so much for sharing a portion of your day with me. I'm honored to have you as part of the love and life family. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson April, And until next time, make it a great week.